the reading of the Scriptures from Isaiah chapter 64, and read in verses 1 to 5a. So let us uh, hear God's Word uh, reverently, joyfully, and in faith. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. I remember reading a number of years ago, uh, Christian uh, leader, 20th century David Martin Lloyd-Jones, perhaps that name's familiar to you, but perhaps not. But uh, he, he gave an interesting thought uh, in, in light of one of his great disappointments in life, and that is that God never blessed his preaching with revival. Well, I suspect with that standard, most uh, preachers are disappointed because uh, certainly uh, in recent times there's been very little revival uh, in our own country, uh, or probably even uh, all over the world from that standpoint. If you define revival uh, as an intense uh, outpouring of God uh, to affect countless numbers, uh, I might uh, say that uh, revival uh, is uh, God coming in the intensity of his presence just to save one. Uh, certainly to that person, it's revival. And, and in that regard, it speaks to our lesson this morning because Isaiah prays for God to come and uh, revive the people. It's a continuation of uh, uh, what amounts to a long prayer, but here it's a prayer for revival. Uh, as you know... Uh, there is a partial answer in the history of Israel, uh, return under Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, but it's so partial, I really wonder if uh, the prayer for revival doesn't uh, go much farther than that, namely uh, to Christ. I think ultimately that's really the, the answer to the prayer for revival. Uh, because there is permanent revival uh, in Christ. Saving of countless numbers, uh, one or many, but nonetheless, Christ comes to revive his people in answer to the prayer, the prayer this morning of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, it is a prayer related to the desperate condition of his countrymen uh, that drives the people to pray. Uh, wonderful application here. Uh, absent revival, the coming of many for one, People are lost forever. Uh, worse, they cannot save themselves. So all men outside of Christ are lost forever, except for God to work. Now, we see the desperate condition in the prophet Isaiah in our previous study, Isaiah 63, verse 17. Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways? Isaiah realizes that they are in a bad way because God has led them astray. It's a very difficult understanding, but it's all related to their idolatry. 
you become an idolater, God works mightily to uh, effect utter destruction. Simply the prayer of the desperate condition of the people of God in the days of Isaiah that God is working to lead them astray. Terrifying thought, but nonetheless, uh, it's what follows from idolatry and turning away from God. Notice again the desperate condition. And you have hardened our hearts from fearing you. So God has been at work hardening their hearts uh, so that they wouldn't fear Him, so He wouldn't have to save them. That's why Isaiah is praying for revival. Uh, wonderful application again, why we should pray for revival. Because hearts are being hardened, people are being led astray by deception the world over, and nothing will happen except God works. That's true of your neighbors, your colleagues, uh, your family members, and so we need to pray like the prophet Isaiah that God would work. God currently in the days of uh, prophet Isaiah is absent their affairs. And there is no more desperate plight than for God to leave. Because it means nothing will happen except uh, a more intensified, increasing slide into eternal ruin. Again, we are in a desperate plight if God leaves us. And absent God, we are and will remain separated from Him, liable to eternal ruin. And so, look at the prayer of Isaiah. Chapter 64 and verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It's a prayer for God to come. Uh, reminds me of, uh, of our Lord's uh, prayer. He teaches us to pray, Matthew chapter 6. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He prays for the kingdom of God to come because absent the coming of the kingdom, uh, we are in a desperate way, lost forever. But we should pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, I love the other line just as majestically. Uh, Deliver us from evil. Deliver us, O great God of heaven, from evil. It's an appeal for God to come and work in our lives that we would be delivered from evil. Because if He doesn't come, you know what? We won't be delivered from evil. It will own us lock, stock, and barrel. It's a prayer for revival in its own way. Uh, we... Uh, uh, we learn here in this text that it's a prayer for God to come and to destroy the enemies of God's people and to uh, cause them to, uh, to submit to his kingdom. Uh, we have this in the purpose clause, uh, latter part, second part of verse 1. Uh, that, or in order that the mountains might quake at thy presence. Uh, and then notice again uh, the purpose, as a fire kindles the brushwood, as a fire causes water to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. It's a prayer for God to come in judgment and to cause all of the enemies of God to submit. Uh, you and I ought to pray like that uh, because uh, seemingly the enemies of the church grow stronger and stronger and emboldened and more emboldened and uh, people of God are persecuted all over the world and so we should pray like the prophet Isaiah is praying for the divine presence to affect judgment. Uh, and that's what will happen when God comes. Uh, 
I love that verse in Jeremiah chapter 23, that your word might be like a fire and it breaks the rocks into pieces. That God will come and smash every worldly kingdom and every hardened heart uh, to effect a judgment and uh, eternal ruin. It's the same, uh, the second coming of Christ is described in Revelation chapter 6 and verses 16 and 17. Uh, he comes and the kings flee and uh, uh, ask for the mountains to hide them from him who sits upon the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. That's why we pray for revival. Uh, because when God comes, it's too late, and the wrath of the Lamb will come to effect incredible destruction. Uh, of course, by and large, the church is losing, uh, losing this theology today. We simply uh, reject eternal punishment. I mean, I understand why. It's such a difficult notion. Uh, universalism is growing uh, more and more in the Christian church. People simply reject uh, the notion of hell as a place of eternal suffering. Remember a number of years ago, I, I went to a uh, session uh, entitled uh, How to Speak to Your Children About Hell, and I went to the session and uh, the Methodist minister said, well, you really don't need to worry, there is no hell. <laughs> well, that's good. Why, why did I waste my time? There is no hell. Uh, and then she went on to say, well, you know, maybe for Adolf Hitler. And I thought, Adolf Hitler, you got to be kidding me. There's a lot of people worse than Adolf Hitler. How about Joseph Stalin and uh, Mao? I mean... Hitler was a choir boy compared to Stalin, but, you know, we, uh, somewhat ironic to me that we come to enamor such people today. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, this Methodist minister had rejected the notion uh, of uh, universal punishment, hell, but it's not unique to her. Uh, perhaps you've read on occasion in the Wall Street Journal that, uh, uh, the Pope is uh, troubled over this notion of eternal punishment. Uh, so much so that uh, uh, hell is not a place of punishment, it's just simply a place where there's no love. I don't know that he believes that or not. I don't have a clue. Uh, I only know what uh, little Catholic theology that I know from uh, reading articles in the Wall Street Journal, notwithstanding that I have their catechism on my bookshelf. Uh, so that when I need to get technical, I can read their own literature. Uh, but I suspect uh, many, many Catholics, uh, like many, many Methodists, and perhaps more and more Protestants as the day grows longer, reject any notion of eternal punishment. So one of the reasons, ladies and gentlemen, that we should pray for revival, because absent eternal punishment, there's no need for revival. We simply all go to heaven. Uh, a popular theology that was uh, present in the early days of the 20th century, the Unitarian Church, and now it's almost Christianity the world over. We don't need God to come in revival because uh, everyone's going to heaven and there will be no eternal hell. Well, certainly uh, the prophet Isaiah holds otherwise as the word of God. Uh, and we know this from the two similes that are present in the text. Uh, notice verse 2, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil. The similes of, uh, of uh, water, boiling water, and fire expressing total and terrible judgment. 
It's a theology that's uh, critical to revival. Nothing causes revival uh, than when men and women and boys and girls understand that God will come in terrible judgment. Awesome display of his power and uh, none will escape. None will escape. Well, this is not only a prayer for uh, God to come in judgment, uh, and so the need for revival, but it's also a, a prayer for God to come and revive his people in, uh, in blessings, and that's uh, found in verse 3 to the first part of verse 5 that God would come to bless his people. That's why you and I should pray for revival, that God in an intense way would come uh, to save many, to bless his people. Uh, it, it embraces something of what God did in the past in the history of the prophet Isaiah, namely that God came down in Sinai. Uh, we read this, uh, Exodus chapter 19. Uh, it's interesting that the prophet is praying that God would do again what he did in the past. Uh, again, Exodus chapter 19 and uh, in verse uh, 18. Uh, now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. And uh, Moses also tells us in the 16th verse that the people trembled in fear. And that, in many respects, is a prelude to revival. You understand who God is and you're a sinner. Uh, you ought to learn to tremble uh, because of what God does to, for those who are outside his son. But here, uh, the people of Israel grasped that central reality and they beheld the spectacle in fear and trembling. Exodus 19, verse 16. Uh, we teach our kids not to fear anything today. Have you ever seen that sweatshirt, No Fear? Really? You really believe that? Read the book of Revelation. Tell me you don't fear. You don't fear God. But that's what we do in our culture. It's as if we want to teach it. We want to shield our children from everything, uh, but you cannot shield them from God because he will exact a due and a price, especially in light of the provision of blessing in Jesus Christ. And at the Exodus, God blessed them with divine revelation and a covenant. Uh, and the reason for such blessing is the uniqueness and incomparability of God. And that, of course, is central to this text, verse 4. Isaiah chapter 64 in verse 4. For from old they have not heard nor perceived by ear, neither has I seen a God besides thee who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. It's part of the majesty of the prayer of the prophet Isaiah for revival. The majesty of God that breaks upon the man or the woman or the boy or girl who waits for the Lord. The God will come revive. I understand in the history of revival, it's typically understood to be an intense outpouring where many, many come to faith. But in many respects, revival can be as simple as one waiting for the Lord to come to affect the blessings of his covenant, that he would send rain and joy and the winds of peace and the delight of the presence of God. Uh, the text is a reminder that in all of creation, only God can deliver. 
uh, in the totality of our sensory abilities. And that's the reference to ear and, and eye. And in all of the experiences of, uh, of our lives, in hearing and seeing, none arises to the absolute perfections and power as the God of the Bible. And it is this God that Isaiah is invoking to intervene. You know why? Because there is no other. There is no other God who can so intervene in human history and cause a heart to break in fear and trembling and to open a heart to receive the Lord Jesus Christ in revival. Only God can do that. He appeals to none else, for there is no one else. All of time and eternity can be investigated and searched, will come up empty, save Isaiah's God, save our God, the God of Grace Bible Church. Inquiries can be made of every library and database, and the results are the same. In a cryptic, compressed sense, the shorter catechism asks the questions, are there more gods than one? And the answer is so beautiful. There are, there's only one God. There's only one God. Question five, shorter catechism. We don't uh, catechize our children today by and large because uh, we think that we don't need to. Uh, but we desperately need to. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and the true God, the God of Scripture. We should catechize our children to teach them the theology of the history of the church and to teach them who God is and who Christ is, that they might come to know him. I remember uh, going to an acquaintance of mine a uh, very distant acquaintance who was invited to his house because of a, a party. And uh, uh, my wife and I went, and I engaged the gentleman in discussion. He told me that his, uh, his uh, daughter uh, was uh, studying in the Middle East. And well, of course, at that time, uh, not unlike today, the Middle East was in terrible turmoil. Uh, warfare and revolution and destruction. And I, she told him... Uh, I would remember to pray for his daughter for her safety. He said, well, I'm praying for my daughter. I prayed to God. I prayed to Allah. I named three other gods. I thought, you're kidding me. But his answer was, I want to cover all the bases. Well, that's not covering any bases whatsoever because there is no other God to pray to for protection and safety. But that's the way we think today. Here was a man that I'm sure would confess to be a Christian, but because of improper teaching and misunderstanding of the Bible, he thought that all gods were the same. I think otherwise, and so does the prophet Isaiah. There are no more gods than the God of the Scripture, the God of the Bible, the God of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, invoking other gods is useless, for they do not exist except in a depraved imagination. Uh, central to the teaching uh, of the Bible, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5 in the seventh verse, you shall have no other gods before me. But we live in a day of many gods, contrary to the scripture. And that's why in the words of the prophet Isaiah, his word will come like a fire, will smash rocks into little pieces. 
because there is no God but one. And that is central, central to revival. When a heart is gripped by the theology of judgment and then only God can bless, the door is open for revival, for God to come. Well, again, I mentioned earlier that uh, a portion of the prophet's prayer is answered in the return of the nation from the Babylonian captivity and rebuilding the temple. But the greatest of answers of this prayer is found in the New Testament uh, because God does come down uh, in judgment and in blessing in uh, the God-man Jesus Christ. There's three locations I would like to look at uh, to document this for you this morning. The first is the baptism uh, of our Lord in Matthew chapter 3, in verse 16. Uh, it is the coming of God. Uh, and it uses the language, uh, two verbs in particular, from Isaiah chapter 64 in the text that we have read this morning, uh, that the heavens are opened, and that God comes down. It's for that reason, I believe, that in Matthew chapter 3, in the 16th verse, uh, the apostle is alluding to the great prayer of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. Notice that verb. That verb was used in the Septuagint of uh, Isaiah 64. The heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove, coming down uh, upon him. So that Matthew, again, is alluding to the prophet's prayer. Isaiah prays for God to open the heavens and for come down. Baptism of Jesus, he does. He comes down. Heavens are opened. Jesus is baptized. Heavens are opened and the Spirit of God comes down. Uh, furthermore, there's a, very likely a conceptual allusion here uh, to the great event of the Exodus. Uh, one of the greatest events of revival in all of the scriptures is the Exodus. Uh, the people uh, were formed into a nation under God. Uh, they went through the Red Sea, they went through the water and they came out of the water. Jesus goes down into the water and comes out. Uh, more importantly, uh, there's something of this theology in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, be tempted uh, by the devil, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Uh, there's no question that the reference to 40 days and 40 nights is a conceptual allusion uh, to the 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, needing God to come to provide food and water, to feed them and to give them drink. And I think the point of the allusion is that Jesus uh, is the new Israel. Uh, and as well, there's another allusion to Christ as uh, the greater Moses if you have your Old Testament, uh, turn to uh, the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 34 and verse 28. Exodus 34, verse 28. Uh, it's a reference to Moses, uh, covenant that God's going to make with Israel uh, through their great deliverer, 
So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, and he did not eat bread or drink water. Marking, of course, I think, uh, Matthew's use of that text, but he applies it to Jesus as the greater deliverer, the greater Moses. Our Moses, if you will, uh, who is leading us in the greatest revival of all time and the last great exodus to our eternal home. So, it is an instructive point about revival, where one or, whether one are saved or many are saved, that revival is in a person, the person of Jesus. Not the Moses of old, that's where present-day Israel goes astray, but the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That if there is going to be a revival of one or of many, it's going to be objectified in the person of Jesus Christ, for there is no other. There is no one else but the God-man who comes down out of heaven to save his people. And here in the text of uh, reference to the baptism of uh, our Savior, the coming down of the Spirit would be the particular agent of revival. So the Spirit comes down upon Jesus. And if anyone is ever to be saved, it is by, of course, the coming down of the Spirit to open the heart that's been closed by the power of God. There's another allusion uh, in uh, Matthew to Isaiah chapter 64 in a reference to the senses of the eye and the ear. Uh, I believe Matthew alludes to Isaiah chapter 64 in uh, Matthew chapter 13, uh, where we find a reference uh, to eyes being opened, ears being opened. Uh, the context is uh, our Lord is teaching in parables. Uh, and the disciples are somewhat befuddled because uh, Parables can be difficult to understand sometimes. In fact, as you know from your reading of the New Testament, most of the people didn't understand the parabolic teaching and simply went away in disgust. Uh, disciples did not. What's, what's the difference in the disciples remaining and many turning away? What's the difference today in your coming to church to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ and the vast majority of people staying home? or seeing God on the golf course, or fishing for stripers in Lake Texoma. There's a difference, and Jesus tells us what that uh, difference is. Matthew chapter 13, uh, in verse 11, He answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. That's a terrifying text. But in all of its simplicity, it tells you why you trusted Christ. Why? Because you were smarter than your neighbor or your colleague at work or your uh, seatmate at school? No, because God granted it to you and withheld it from others. That's revival, ladies and gentlemen. Whether it be one or many, God grants it. And eyes and ears are open to behold the majesty of the mysteries of the grace of God. It's why revival ought to occur in our hearts every day. 
hearts full of thanksgiving and joy that God granted it to us. Notice the uh, same chapter in Matthew, verses 16 and 17. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. I think the allusion to uh, the prayer of the prophet Isaiah for revival in chapter 64 is expressed in a measure here. Because he grants to open the eyes and the ears of the disciples that they might behold the mysteries of the grace of God. In other words, the disciples are blessed by the uniqueness of God in Jesus who explains the parables to them by opening their eyes and ears to perceive and to understand. You and I come to Christ through our sensory organs, eyes and ears, our heart. Uh, but the point of revival is that God must open them. Uh, and apart from him opening, they will remain closed forever. Forever. Uh, so God acts in reviving. The revival in Matthew 13 is kind of a small one, the disciples, and even to that extent, minus one. Uh, but it's revival nonetheless, powerful revival. He grants them to believe and opens their eyes and their ears. Uh, so revival is not just any person, the person of Jesus. And everything else is rejected because no one else can save but the Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of God coming down. But revival is also in actions. Eyes and ears must be opened by him or nothing will happen. It's a remarkable antidote to a terrible disease that's inimical to the heart of every man or woman or boy and girl. You know what that disease is? It's called pride. When you understand what God did for you, he did for you solely in his purposes from all eternity past and in his sovereign power, it humbles you to bow before him and to praise him and to him alone because there's no other God but Him in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so again, Jesus opened our eyes and ears and our hearts to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And only the God of heaven can do that. And if you're a Christian, He did it for you. And if you're not a Christian, you should understand your spiritual plight and Pray for God in His grace to revive your heart, to open your eyes and your ears. So, we've looked at God coming down, opening the heavens, the baptism of Jesus. We've looked at uh, God uh, coming down and uh, opening the sensory organs that we might know Him. Uh, the third place where uh, I think this prayer is, uh, is answered uh, uh, is in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul alludes to Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 4. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, the, uh, the Old Testament context, of course, is a, an appeal to the incomparability of God 
in affecting deliverance. That there's no other God that can deliver. That's the point, by the way, of the Exodus event. That the gods of Egypt were totally ransacked and utterly destroyed. And even in Pharaoh and all of his armies, they were cast into the sea. While the children of Israel were rescued from the sea. Great revival. But only God can do that. And only God did it. And only God can do it again. Uh, So the incomparability of God, that there's no other God but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah, just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. In 1 Corinthians, the church is experiencing disunity and pride uh, because uh, they've been infected by a terrible disease of uh, of pride and the love of disunity. Uh, But the the reason for their pride and disunity is because they've misunderstood the gospel and its revelation. Uh, that worldly wisdom has entered the church and they are enamored, of course, with Greek culture. It's simply the way of many churches today. We come enamored with our culture and so we invite that culture into the church. It's what the Corinthians had uh, been doing uh, uh, in their desire to be progressive by bringing Greek culture in. Uh, so again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 7. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Notice the marvelous God there. Uh, the hidden mysteries of the wisdom of God that he makes known to his people. If he didn't make it known, they would not know it. They would be hidden to them. And then that God predestined before the ages for the glory of his people. We don't think in those terms today because uh, perhaps we don't read our Bibles anymore or we have invited too much culture into our churches. And so uh, the antidote is the simplicity of the gospel and revival. Uh, The word mystery here is a very unique word. Uh, I believe it's an allusion to another place in the Old Testament where it's found uh, that is simply, I think, the pivotal point of, of understanding all of the references to mystery uh, throughout uh, the scriptures. Uh, Referencing uh, Daniel chapter 2, where this word mystery is used. Uh, Daniel chapter 2 in verse uh, verse 19. Uh, The context, of course, is that the emperor has a dream. And he tells his uh, wise men at court to interpret the dream for him. Uh, But he also does something else, as you know, your study of the book of Daniel. He says, well, tell me the dream too. And then interpret it for me. Well, they can't. Uh, Except for one man, Daniel. Daniel can tell the emperor the dream and its interpretation. Notice Daniel chapter 2 and verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Uh, By the way, I don't believe that God uh, reveals himself any longer 
to the contemporary Christian church in uh, dreams and visions, but nonetheless, the majesty of the grace of God that he revealed it to Daniel and hid it from the wise men at court. Men have a way of thinking that they're so smart, but only Daniel knows the mystery of the workings of God. Notice uh, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 29. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mystery has made known to you what will take place. The point of the dream is that uh, God cuts a rock and smashes the idolatrous image that the emperor dreams about and destroys it. A stone crushes an image representing the kingdoms of the world. Notice Daniel chapter 2 and verse 45. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, and the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Uh, this prophecy, by the way, is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 21, fulfilled by Jesus, as you might imagine. He's the stone that comes to smash the kingdoms of the world. I'm not uh, implying that it's fully occurred, but its, uh, its fulfillment has begun in Christ. I alluded earlier to the reality that all revival is rooted in a person uh, and his actions. Uh, to judge and to open eyes and ears as well as to destroy eyes and ears. Notice uh, Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 21. What's important about this text is Jesus alludes to Daniel chapter 2, uh, finding its beginning fulfillment in himself. Matthew 21, verses 42 and 44. And Jesus said to them, Did you ever read the Scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And of course, supplying it to himself is the chief cornerstone. Christ uh, his presence. It's the incomparability of the power of God in Christ inaugurating the end-time destruction of the kingdoms of man. It ought to invoke terror in our hearts as a prelude to chasing us to the Savior to sue for peace. If you're not a Christian, I mean, I remind you of the great civilization, the history of the world, Babylon, gone. Egypt, gone. Rome, gone. Greece, gone. One of these days it will be said, if God tarries of the United States of America, gone. You know what will remain? The kingdom of Christ. It will advance, overtake the world, and destroy everything that gets in its way. The rock crushing everything. Fall upon him. If you're not a Christian, ask him to save you, to open your eyes and your ears that you might embrace him. 
But in 1 Corinthians, Paul quotes Isaiah to illustrate that the human senses are inadequate to comprehend the wisdom of God. It's a great folly in many respects of modern day education. It can only really teach so very little. You know why? Because our reason has been affected by the fall. And that we need for God to open our eyes and our ears that we might understand who God is in Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to downplay reason and wisdom. It's manifestly important in gaining wisdom and knowledge, but you cannot, by human reason, come to know God because your senses, your eyes and your ears, have been affected by the fall of the first Adam. And you need what? For God to open your eyes and your ears that you might come and behold the incomparability of God in Jesus Christ and flee to him as the only Savior. And again, that wisdom is Jesus Christ crucified. That's what Paul says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Central to all knowledge is Christ crucified. And that he is the Lord of glory. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. My friend, that's wisdom. If you're a Christian, you know the Lord of glory, whose glory will overtake all of the kingdoms of man and usher you into eternal, everlasting glory. So that the ironic fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 64 in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is that Christ at his weakest, at his weakest upon the cross, Christ crucified is the Lord of glory setting in motion the destruction of all worldly kingdoms. Uh, notice verse 5, that your faith should not rest upon the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now, I'm not against studying the wisdom of men. Go to school, learn. Whatever it is you need to learn, as God would have you as a Christian. Uh, but you cannot learn about salvation absent the power of God. Because that's what it takes to open your eyes and your ears. Uh, it's important to go to school to learn history, to learn how to weld, to learn to be a plumber, a builder, candlestick maker, whatever it is you need to learn. I don't know what God's will for your life is. Be a good student. Study hard. But in the revival and understanding of the gospel, you come to Christ because uh, he opens your eyes and your ears by his power and his power alone. Uh, no other power can open the eyes and the ears of the soul to apprehend the Lord of glory in Christ crucified. The atomic bomb is chump change compared to the power of God who can take a broken heart and open it to respond to the things of God in his divine power. That, my friend, is the essence of revival, whether it be one or many. I trust as a Christian you know that. If you're not a Christian, flee to the Savior and ask for his power to descend upon you out of heaven to open your eyes and your ears by his power in his power alone. So what I'm trying to say is that Jesus fulfills the prayer of the prophet Isaiah. 
We know it from his baptism. We know it from the way that he deals with his disciples in granting them to know the mysteries. And then we know it here in the incomparability of God, the majesty of salvation, Christ crucified, the Lord of glory, saving us by the power of God. That God makes the gospel known to us by divine revelation and illumination for our glory. And in that sense, again, I say this uh, simply by repetition because it's so manifestly important. Uh, The antidote to pride for revival is all of grace, sovereign grace. God wills to exercise his power at his will, not at our will. Uh, If he does not exercise his power to affect our will, our eyes and our ears will remain shut and we will be forever liable to everlasting ruin and destruction. Furthermore, there's an element, of course, of faith in the divine intervention. Paul changes a phrase of Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah has of the incomparability of God to those who wait for him. Paul says for those who love him. That what God has prepared for us in the future, our sensory organs cannot fully comprehend. Uh, My friend, that's the greatest beginning point of revival. uh, That this life is chump change compared to what God has for us in eternal glory. Uh, That there is no comparison in all of redemptive history. That's the point of revival, the incomparability of God, the incomparability of the power of God, the incomparability of the God-man, Jesus Christ, to save. And all religions fail here. I once was driving in uh, what I think is one of the most beautiful states of the entire United States of America, state of Louisiana. I drove by a town called Elysian Fields. Interesting, that's a pagan concept, Roman concept, Elysian Field, their concept of eternity. My friend, I love Louisiana, but it's chump change compared to heaven. A lot of people believe in reincarnation. Chump change compared to what the Lord of glory will do to us when he comes to receive us unto himself. Many Christians, many professing Christians today believe in purgatory. It is really chump change compared to heaven, what God has for those who love him. Of course, paganism, that there is no God, the best we'll get in this life, really. The best you'll get in life is your favorite high school or college team winning the championship? Is that all that there is? No, my friend, there's much more. There's much more in Jesus Christ that heaven is no comparison to the vagaries of our fallen imagination. If you're not a Christian, embrace the Savior because God has embraced you and opened your eyes. That's power. That's the gospel. That's revival. That as a Christian, you get life now abundant life, and you'll get more and better later. So Isaiah prays for God to intervene. He does in Jesus. And he makes him known to us by his sovereign grace and revival. I trust. 
the reality of the prayer of the great prophet Isaiah and its fulfillment in the New Testament will break upon you in a special way this day. And that you will close this day in a prayer of revival, thanking God that in His grace, He met you in your depravity and opened your eyes to embrace the Savior. And may God be gracious to you to that end.